Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Alidad Hamidi. Hi, Alidad. Welcome to the podcast. So today we're going to talk about systems thinking and some of its practical implications. So why don't we kick off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved in systems thinking. Sure. I come from a software development background. Then I got into marketing as well as software engineering. I have been a product manager, developer, VA, program manager, practice lead, agile coach, all that jazz. And most of the work I do recently is consulting. I've worked in startups in the technology field, enabling cloud transformation for big clients, working in financial projects, working in government-related projects. I came out with system thinking many years ago, mostly from a more technical perspective, like a lot of beginners where you get attracted to collection of tools and methods. I saw causal loop diagram where it was looking at when you have issues in the production or quality problem, and then you jump on fixing it, that caused new problems. And I was quite interested. My aim was to create the best and beautiful, most important causal loop diagram. But then when I started to dig deeper, I realized if you're helping a team to become high performing, you need to understand the organization culture. You need to understand the interaction of that team with other supporting team. You need to understand the perspective of the teams and leadership. I remember I was working in one of the financial organizations a few years ago when I was brought in as an iteration manager. And interestingly enough, some of my first realization in the team or interaction with the team was your board is not designed very well and let's do better estimation of the work and better visibility and i started to notice the environment i I noticed that this team is working in a corner their tables and chairs are quite weird off there are these other teams working on the fancy projects this team is just quietly doing their work and instead of looking at those other elements of the team, I was just focusing on how do you do estimation? I started to ask questions like, how many systems do you guys support? It was a support slash development team. And they said, well, we're supporting this system and that system and that system and making enhancement here. And so I did a mapping exercise between the systems that they support. And um, by system, I mean technical technology system, IT systems. and the revenue that are generated in that business from those systems, guess what? There were around $700 million worth of business annually that this team of eight or 10 people were supporting. But because of the framing of these guys, oh, they're just there. They're just supporting some systems that are sunsetting. They're not working on a cool new transformation projects. By changing the perspective of the team and saying, well, here is what the value of the system is and how important to the business they are. Suddenly the team begin to become more proactive. They wanted to learn more. They started to take pride in their work. So that is why I realized, oh, maybe just focusing on the technical aspect was the wrong approach. That actually kicked off my coaching journey and career because as the team started to get better, they started to present to each other more collaboratively. And that team become one of the best teams in our organization. Funny enough, in my exit interview, when I was leaving and moving to a coaching role, I asked the team members, 
guys, what did I do for you? I did a lot of fancy retros and cool stuff with systems and DevOps stuff. Nine out of 10 of them said, you made us more visible. That's it. I worked with that team for a year. The most important thing for them was you made us more visible. That was the most high leverage thing I did for that team. Rather than everything else that I saw, the fancy board, Uber, agile practices, etc. So that was when one of the points that I realized I need to look at a much broader perspective when I face with a situation or problem that kicked off my system thinking career. I had interest in system thinking before, but this was the first time that power, perception, position, those sort of things has a significant impact on the way we work and the way we perform. So for me, systems thinking, I'm a novice. When I first heard the term, I thought cogs, factory, the system's a bunch of moving parts. We focus on which parts moving. It's flowy, leany stuff. I love a technique called how to make toast to help a team understand the flow of their work across the team. So maybe systems thinking, looking at that flow, looking at who's making toast, which step they're doing and optimizing the snot out of it. So we're looking at time to move and, and a whole lot of lean thinking. But as I listen to people talk about systems thinking a bit more, it give me a realization that we're looking at more a holistic view. We're not just looking at the cogs in the wheel. We're looking at the culture of the team or the organization. How does that help or discourage the way the system works? What are the things outside the work being done? Typically big shiny consulting companies come in with their lovely suits and then they create these innovation hubs and a floor gets taken out and they have the whiteboards and the bean bags and they're doing this innovation stuff and the doing teams are sitting in their SCOTI desks with their cheap secondhand chairs, whacking code out. If I use a holistic view of that, the culture of the organization's broken. So if I kind of got that right, we're not just focusing on a factory and cogs and work being done. We're seeing holistically what's influencing the system as a macro system and where can we make changes that may or may not make the system work better. I love a lot of example you use there, Shane. You know, part of system thinking is looking at the whole, a car is a system, so it's had different parts. It has engine and brake and a steering wheel and all the different parts. None of those parts have the property of moving. It's the interaction of those parts that create moving. So if you look at each part separately, you cannot figure out what is the overall function. And if you want to improve the function of moving, you need to look holistic. So what you just said is called heart system thinking which is looking at the more mechanistic systems and how the parts interacting and those sort of things. System thinking means different things to different people. And quite often as a beginner, we look at the collection of tools and methods. But for me, system thinking is about gaining understanding by looking at the relationship between things. John Lurie has a really good, simple definition, which he said, a system is sets of relationship with a boundary. When you're faced with situation in the world, instead of looking at individual parts, its properties, its behavior, or seeing a problem in isolation, you'll try to gain understanding by look at those relationships and how different parts are interacting. 
that first. We also need to consider a system in an environment. So if you are thinking about transportation system, then the relationship of the car, the driver and the transportation system changes. If you think about the impact of the car to environment, then you're thinking at a different system. So the basic definition of system thinking is a way to gain understanding by looking at the relationship between things. And then when we try to even simplify it more is examining problem more completely and accurately before acting. It allows you to ask better questions before jumping to conclusion. It's just a lens to see the world around you. It's just a different lens. Yeah, I wanted to talk about how we think about things now and perhaps give some examples. I really like what you were saying about thinking about the interactions between things within a boundary, whatever it is you're looking at. And the reason that's important, I think, is because managers in organizations have been trained in reductionist thinking, which is to say the way to reduce the price of a mobile phone or a car or, or increase the performance is to take the thing and break it down into its parts and then optimize each part. So uh, Russell Acoff has a great example where he talks about a car. So if you wanted to have the best car in the world, if you used management thinking, you would work out all the parts you need in the car, and then you would go and source the best part from each manufacturer. And then you would try and stick them together. And if you did that, you would find that they didn't interact in a way that would allow you to have a car. Like let, let's say you took the cheapest thing so you could have the cheapest car. You wouldn't end up with a car that would work. Everything would clash horribly with each other and you'd get nasty feedback loops. So I've worked for a big telco and some other big organizations where they were constantly focused on reducing costs and they would always do it by taking some function that was being done in the organization, centralizing it, controlling it, automating it, and then outsourcing it to the cheapest possible country in the world to do it. But the result of that was that if I wanted to make a firewall rule change for my project, which actually takes somebody five minutes, maybe a day, if they've got to work out what to do, it would typically take 12 weeks and cost a huge amount of money. For one project, we had to set up a small server farm and it took nearly 18 months for that organization to take those servers that they already physically had and turn them into a working server farm. And it was because they had taken the process that maybe one system administrator could do by themselves and they broken it up into a thousand little bits and each of those little bits had this process where you had to make a request and fill in a form and wait for somebody to allocate a resource. And then the person would do the work and they do it wrong because they didn't understand what you're trying to achieve. And then somebody would check it and you'd have to rework it. Eventually it'd be right, but then it would go on to the next step, a thousand steps like that. And then they're all from different vendors and different organizations. And so the remarkable thing was that they thought that they were reducing costs by doing that, but they were actually 
just increasing their costs everywhere. And they were doing that on everything. Everything they did, they took that philosophical approach because it was reductionist thinking. All we have to do is break everything up into its little parts, set a key performance indicator, be really tough with everybody about achieving it, and then everything will work when it's fit together, but it didn't. And that is a really good way of explaining reductionism. And look, reductionism has its place. It's given us mobile. It's given us understanding of DNAs, of atoms. But there are inherent limitations to that way of thinking, which you pointed out. What they don't see is the overall cost to the whole system because we don't measure things that way. And this is another part. As you begin to see the interaction, then our method of inquiry changes. Our method of measuring things begin to change. So Agile was a good example of that. Traditionally, you have a business analyst. They put together the requirements and then the job is done. They're measured by quality of the requirements and how fast they can turn it around. They hand it over to a solution designer and the solution designer look at those requirements and spit out a solution design document. They're measured by that. Then you hand it over to a developer, tester, then deployed in the production. They hand it over to an operation team. And each of them are trying to be very efficient and effective in what they're doing. What we don't realize is, look, each of these components have their own subculture. They are being measured by different metrics. So a a business analyst is not measured by the quality and how the users are using the systems or how fast it will release something. You say, how fast I spit out the requirement and how good I wrote the requirements, which goes back to your example, Murray. That was a perfect example. What Agile did was say, hey, guys, we have all these different subcultures with their own way of measuring and each individual function is being measured differently. Let's put them in the team. They are interacting together. You don't need to submit a form to talk to me. You're part of the team. We have a single team metrics. In other words, what is the outcome that we are delivering? And when you ask them, which team do you belong to? They don't say I'm part of the architecture team or business analyst team or development team. They say I'm part of this agile team. So system thinking help you to see all these other aspects of a system or or interaction of people. You know, most of the big organizations are moving to tribes or villages or squads or whatever um, they're calling themselves. And then they call themselves squad leads or village leads. Uh, a colleague was telling me that she, he was having a conversation with a, with a very senior marketing leader. And she said, I don't have any problem with moving to this model. I work so long to become the head of marketing for this business unit. I'm not going to change my LinkedIn um, profile to village lead. Are you joking? So when you're thinking about solutions or interventions, you got to think much broader than just what is in front of you. And I think system thinking helps to see not just the interaction of that person with her team, it's also interaction on her with the external market. It's the identity and those sort of things. And there are ways and methodologies and approaches to system thinking, which fall more into soft system thinking approaches. So. If I look at a holistic system, if I look outside just the moving parts, if I start looking at the interactions and the culture metrics for an outcome, 
I'm going to bore the ocean, right? It's a big problem to solve. It, it's how do I break that down? How do I take that big, massive problem down, use an agile mindset and, and look at it iteratively in small chunks? How do I create a boundary where I can focus and inspect and adapt without getting swamped? So in order to avoid being overwhelmed with the problems of the world, you look at the problematic situation and you look at what is the outcome you want to achieve. You begin with drawing a boundary and you begin to extend that boundary when it's appropriate. The key point is to start looking at the interaction rather than looking at the part. Before you start looking at the value stream, look at where does this value stream fit? Where is the bigger system that this value stream fit? Try to understand the function of that value stream into that broader system. Then when you're trying to improve that part, let's make sure that this improvement is not breaking anything else. So maybe instead of jumping into a conclusion and try to fix your value stream by upgrading all of your system and using digital technology, maybe it's as simple as your training policies were not allowing your bankers to get training on the existing system. Therefore, they always find workaround. That is how you draw a bigger boundary. Let's say I'm coaching a program team that is having trouble meeting their expectations. Is there some sort of checklist that I can use of, of different lenses I can look at the problem through? Yes. Let me take a step back. So first of all, when we think about systems thinking, there are certain habits that we need to begin to attain. One of them is instead of calling something a problem, because my problem might be someone else's opportunity, or they might not see that as a problem. Let's just think about it for a minute. Let's just see what, what is causing that problem. And it's a bit different to root cause because there is no single root cause in complex system that we're dealing. So there are a multitude of things that are impacting that overall outcome. You begin with a situation that you want to understand and improve. Ask what is influencing it. Instead of jumping into or bringing your predefined sets of tool sets, what are the elements that are influencing? As you discover and uncover different elements, try to create meaningful relationship between them. So how do you do that? You say, if I know what is influences this situation, what is influencing that influence? Keep repeating it and try to create the links. You begin to create a model and then show that model to someone else and get them to find holes in your model. Do it enough that then you have a good understanding of the situation and other people begin to agree. Yes, that's the situation. And then you can see where I need to intervene. So one of the good ways about having that inquiring mind is act like an idiot. Go there like, I don't understand this. Can you tell me? And what happens after that? I think one of the problems as an enterprise agile coach, I've created this self-limiting belief that I have the answer to everything and I'm here to solve your problems. And I try to use fancy words to, to do that instead of just acting like an idiot, like genuinely to say, oh, you have a quality problem. Tell me what happens and what is causing that. Sometimes as consultants and coaches, we keep going to people and say, do you need my help? Do you need my help? Instead, we say, look, I am 
seeing this thing, can you help me understand it? Reverse the dynamic. I'll give you a very specific example. One of my directors that I was helping were having problem with quality of the projects they were doing. There were lots of delay, lots of complaint from customers. Things were getting into production without them knowing it. The customers were surprised. The business didn't know what's going and they have delay in delivery. Anything you can imagine was all you could see in that project. And then we get to the conclusion. We have a project manager, a program manager, which is taking a very heroism approach. Let's just move that person to another part of the organization, bring a different program manager. That was our first solution to that problem. So I said, all right, tell me about the problems. We have a problem that every time we release something into productions, our partner make a change into their documentations without notifying us. And then our customers see that our, our staff are not trained on that. And then the customers complain. And then why does that happen? Oh, because we sold that part of business and then now we are consuming. Then we have product owners who only know part of the system and this, this system was handed over from this team to that team. And then we have problem with IT because we still haven't created an operation. And as you were just talking, I'll just write it down. I said, all right, tell me why did that happen? And why did that happen? And what is the impact of that? I begin to map that. As we were mapping it and I show it to her, the problem was we have a project manager who has a heroism aspect completely fade away that was just a symptom of a much broader dynamic of things we identified three main patterns one was the relation between this company and the partner the the relationship shift from we own the system to we sold it to you now we are reselling your product it changed to we have product owners who are new to the business they haven't done a proper handover and also we haven't defined their roles and uh, relationship properly yet because we were busy running the project. We didn't have time to establish these things. We look at from a technology perspective, we haven't established an IT operation model yet. Tell me if you would have gone with our first solution and we would just get the best project manager ever into that position. Would we solve that quality delay complaint slowness problem? She said, no, if I put anyone else in that position, we'll get the same outcome. We didn't start it with where do I draw the boundary. We started with let's look at the problems and what is influenced that and what is influenced that thing that influenced. And then, oh, by the way, that thing that influenced here is also influencing this other thing. Our relationship have changed and in, in our contracts, we haven't reflected that. Therefore, our product owners cannot talk to that team directly. And suddenly you can see the sort of relationship that influenced that in the past you weren't paying attention to. Now you can come up with much better interventions and observe if I change this thing here and this thing, how does that improve the whole thing? So, yeah, I heard you use the five whys pattern. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? We take five whys before we find the root cause. And the other thing that I found interesting is the idea of observing before we look to what should we adapt? So let's inspect. And in my practice as an agile coach, it took me a while to realize I was doing exactly what you described. I'd drop into an organization. I knew what worked last time and I'd start to apply the patterns or the practices on day one. And then I realized actually, no, I need to sit back and observe the team. I need to see the interactions. I need to see the culture. I need to absorb that stuff 
and then work with the team to figure out what they want to fix first. So again, it's that idea that you need to take holistic view and you need to watch first before you start bringing in things that might help because otherwise you come in with an answer, not a question. Let me help you that. Let's just understand the current team, how they're operating, where do we want to move to and then decide what is more appropriate. And the other thing, Shane, is traditionally when you see a problem, look what else is influencing that. That's the thing. And it's different with 5i because 5i tried to find a root cause. Here, we're not trying to find a root cause. ACOF has this thing, it's called different between difficult problem and messes. When you have a mess, you can never solve it. You can improve it. So there is no solution. So if your car breaks down, you find whatever is not working, you replace it. But in this situation, the, the example I gave you, that problematic situation of contractual issues, identity issues, perception, power, you can't fix it. You can improve it. You might, it might lead into better, but the only way you can influence is by looking at all of the interaction and the different influences to try to see how can we shift those interaction rather than how can I fix this part? So when I look at it that way, I could see a thousand potential reasons why a group of people is having a problem. How do I know where to start? How do I prioritize those issues? Okay. Wherever, start somewhere. Let's just do a case study. Okay. Let's go back to a organization I worked with where I was a, a project manager and I was trying to get my firewall rule change done. I had assumed when I did my plan that it wouldn't be a problem because it never had been anywhere before. <laughs> so then I discovered that the way I had to get it done was to put in a formal request and then nothing seemed to happen. And then I chase people up and then it moves a step. Somebody gets assigned and it just kind of went on and on and on where I was getting more and more frustrated. Our whole program was being delayed. This other team just didn't seem to care. I escalated it to my managers and they said, well, that's just the way it is. Did you allow enough time for it? And here I am seeing substantial delays, substantial costs. My team members are complaining about it. They can't do things. We're looking at $10 million project, which is being delayed by months at a cost of millions because some other part of the organization is trying to save pennies on firewall rule changes. And it, I couldn't do anything about it. I had to accept it. I had just had to replan around it and just accept it was all going to take a lot longer. So this is a really good example on looking at things as mechanistic versus human systems. First of all, we need to accept the fact that shifting things in human system take time because you're dealing with their identities. You're dealing with years and years of thinking about certain things. We are not silicon, we're carbon. So we have very different angles. So it's not like a, a part is broken and replace it and the engine is going to work. Let's accept that. So maybe in your situation, it was the amount of time it takes to fix it. You might not have been able to reduce it. There was a way. One of the ways would have been you map everything you need to do, begin to look at the cost of doing it. Because you realized it in hindsight, early days, instead of trying to just push to the next team, let's say, all right, let's just, let me just map the entire thing that require me to 
achieve that thing. Let me add the cost and time angle. Let me go and talk to someone who care about the overall cost angle. Let's say, let's say to finance or a manager at the top, right? And I tell them, look, I can do it this way. It's going to cost you this much. Or we can bring all of these people from these different angles together to a room. I tell them this is what I need. They tell what they need from me. We fix it. And by the way, it costs you this much because as a project manager, I, I spend a week, which costs, let's say, ten dollars to $12,000 for that week. It costs me that week to even get to this point, realize the problem. Do you want next time that you have a similar thing, do you still want this to cost you this much or do you want to do something about it? And if they say, look, there is no other way around it, that's it, you stop there. Because at the end of the day, remember, it is not your problem. Who is the owner of that system? If they are not willing to fix it, despite you showing them, here's the problem. These are the way we can think about it. We've done it. Then probably you are in the wrong system. But I tell you what, quite often when I find the right person and show them that, they listened. And they acknowledge that, okay. I understand if you want to change this, if we need to go across number of boundaries. Let's take a complex adaptive system approach. Let's launch an experiment, see how we can do it better, collect some metrics. Then I will go and talk to these other heads off, and then maybe we can come up with a better approach to do that. I have quite yeah. often seen folks in the organization who, once you show them the broader system, they are willing to move forward and change things and invest into changing things. Look, I've done that. Web leaders saw a problem. I was able to use this modeling approach and asking questions to help them map out better ways of doing things and find points where things were being blocked and so on. So I can see it works. Sometimes though, there's fundamental issues about the way the organization is organized, which go to the very top. And maybe you just have to accept it in that case and say, well, that's, that's the way it is in this organization. I want to introduce you to another aspect of system thinking. So one of the ways of thinking about system thinking is about thinking from a triangle. One is you have traditional hard system approach where you say, look at a whole, Look at the interaction, look at the purpose of that whole. And then if you want to intervene, you want to fix anything, you want to improve anything, try to look at the interaction in the whole. In other words, you see system as a physical thing that exists in the world. That's hard system approach. And the lean theory of constraint fit into that. So theory of constraints say, oh, there's a system and let's find the constraint in the system. There is a single constraint in the entire system and let's just fix that. Or whatever the five steps are. That's one way of thinking about it. It's a hard system approach. There's benefit to it. There's a lot of lesson. There's aspects from hard system approach that we use in any sort of system. Thinking. Then around 1970, the soft system theory come into picture with Checkland, who says, look, we're dealing with humans and humans have worldview and something you consider a problem from someone else's worldview might not be a problem. Simple example. Depending on whether you are a supporter of liberals or labors, you see two different things. What is the reality? 
It depends on your worldview. I'm not saying there is no right or wrong. I'm not talking about complete relativism. Obviously, harming someone is wrong, however you look at it. But the problem we're facing is not as simple as that. So soft system theory bring to attention the fact that there is no such thing as a hard system with its components that are interacting and we can define it, etc. We are humans and we look at things from that perspective and ideas like boundary coming under the title of soft system. As a system thinker, number one thing you need to do is to see the things from someone else's perspective. The third one is critical systems heuristics, which is an extension of soft systems, which is at the end of the day, as a person, as a human, it's important for me to think about power dynamics, people's motivation, decision-making ideas. Even more important that I need to reflect how my own biases, my own internal dynamics and worldview influence me on seeing the world around me. So the critical systems are more reflective. They are looking at it as a person in the world how do I see problems rather than here is the problem and here's the system? Where do you start? Because if I think about theory of constraints, we find the bottleneck, we start there, but it's a bit unclear to me when if I take such a broad view. Start from a problematic situation that few people agree that, yes, that's the problem. Let's say it takes us 18 months from the time our customer needs something until we deliver something into production. Start from that and then start asking questions. What is influencing and impacting that problem? Then say, so what is influencing that influence? What is influencing that influence? And try to draw boundaries around it. Try to say, all right, stop. I think we know enough and we know where we need to intervene. This is the thing. This is the beauty. It doesn't matter where you start. Because wherever you start, it will lead you to see the sets of relationship that is getting you there quite often with complex problems. You don't even have an agreement of what is the problem from multiple stakeholders. Yeah. So in your example that you provide in that they had servers and bringing in attempt take them years from each individual manager perspective, if you ask them, is there a problem? Is it, there is absolutely no problem because my team is fully utilized. We are doing our part really fast. No problem at all. But if you broaden the perspective, I talk, go and talk to someone else who is paying for that and go and talk to a customer or to a representative of a customer, or go and talk to a manager who has a profit and loss account or talk to marketing, then there is a problem. So acknowledge that there isn't even an agreement sometimes on what the problem is. We need to summarize. So I really like systems thinking. I think I'm just one of those people who thinks that way about the world. And when I've come across all of this, I just love it. You know, I, it resonates with me. Akoff and John Seddon, who writes a lot about systems thinking in public services, who I really like. I, I really like the, the core idea that it's the interactions between things which determine the overall outcome. So we need to look at things from end to end. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts is the way I summarize it. I like what you said about being clear about what your boundary is, because that can make a big difference. 
and being clear with people, like having a discussion about what is the problem because it can be quite confusing. So we need to have some agreement. I like the approach of modeling. So drawing feedback loops and reinforcement loops, I find interesting and a useful way to understand this. And there's a tool online that I found very helpful to understand systems thinking. It's called Loopy. And it's on a website called ncase.me. And it's just somebody who's set up a number of systems with feedback loops for all sorts of things. And you can go in there and play with them or create your own. So he's got one for ecology, depression, automation, and so on. I found that useful. And one of the things that it does show is that it doesn't matter where you start, as you said, start somewhere and you can start to see the impact and that will lead you to something else, which might have a greater impact. Something I need to be a bit more careful of, I think, is thinking I have the solution. So I have a number of patterns that I know about. And so if I'm coaching an organization and I see a problem that can be solved with that particular pattern. I am quite likely to say, oh, you should solve that problem with this patent. But you're reminding me that there could actually be a lot more going on than that. And if I intervene with a patent, uh, yeah, maybe it'll help, but maybe it won't as well, because there may be other things that are more important behind it. So I need to think more about that. Do you want to respond to anything I said, Aladad, before we ask Shane? I like your summarization. I just want to caution you again. Creating causal loop diagram is just one aspect of system thinking. Causal loop diagram belongs to a tradition of system thinking called system dynamics. Right? There are at least six different traditions in, in, in system thinking. So system dynamic is one of them. System dynamic is like the scrum of the agile world, right? Of the system thinking world. It's most well known. It has tools you can use. A lot of people have written about it, but system dynamic is not systems thinking. It's just one of the ways of thinking about systems. Just wanted to cautious everyone on that. There are soft system theories, critical system theories, cybernetics, learning system, second order cybernetics, and each of them have their own traditions. Remember, in a complex adaptive system, when the causation is not very clear, things like causal loop diagram are not necessarily helpful. Just be careful where to apply which approach and method of system thinking. Mike Jackson has a method called critical systems theory, which helps you to see which systemic approach should I use. So just be careful about that. Okay, let's see it from Shane. Alrighty. So you talked in your introduction about the many different roles you've had in your career, and it just reinforced for me that a lot of the good agile coaches have T-skills, right? They've worn lots of hats. They have a lot of experience in their lives. The second thing for me is systems thinking is not about the mechanical system on its own. It's not about the production line. It's a, a holistic view and a lot more things. So that's important. We should look at interactions. That's what a lot of the theory is about. We look at the handoffs. We look at what is handed off. We look at how it's handed off, how it's received, how it's accepted and what's done next. So, yeah, that's something that I tend to do unconsciously with teams and get them to focus on the handoffs a lot. One I hadn't thought about is the method of measurement changes. So we stop measuring just the individual parts. We start measuring the system. And for me, that's almost like we're measuring the outcome that's happening. 
I like the fact that we talked about boundaries and perspectives. For me, we will often with the data and analytics space, we will form a unnatural boundary around a data domain or a subject area. We'll form a boundary around a persona or our customer that's going to use the, the information products we produce. Forcing a boundary so we can focus, we can iterate for a period of time on that work, deliver the value, and then move on to the next piece. And I like the way you said that we can use value streams as a way of creating a boundary. And therefore, we also then, from a systems thinking point of view, need to look at the other value streams and the interactions between them without deep diving too much. I find that names are important. And I think if we didn't call it systems thinking and we called it business agility, I would have read a lot more books about it than I have today. So when you talk about the patterns, the methods, you know, the many different things we can get out of systems thinking that we can use in our toolkit, it's got a lot of power. But I think that word systems thinking just put me off. It made me think of factories and lean and lots of complexity. I think we should rename it to business agility thinking, and then the world will be a better place. So that was me. I found it a really good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And I acknowledge that systems thinking threw people out a bit in terms of uh, getting their interest. It does tell about the problem that exists around systems thinking, but it also talk about our biases as coaches, where do we look for solution to our problem? If as an agile coach, you're always looking in the agile community, then it's my problem because I draw the boundary only around agile. I look for solution only the agile space rather than learn about anthropology, learn about system thinking, learn about other disciplines. So for me, systems thinking is just giving us patterns to make us more agile. We have more of an agile mindset when we adopt some of those patterns at the right place with the right context. I think systems thinking is just a set of agile patterns that have given a name. Let's agree to disagree. Let's think about someone that is trying to address the problem of homelessness. It has nothing to do with business agility. So a typical response to homelessness is what? Let's uh, start some shelters. Does that sound like a good response? Problem, homelessness. Solution, shelters. Yeah, that's a problem because what we have done is we haven't addressed the cause of homelessness. We've just masked the problem. In other words, these are the solutions that lead to more and bigger problems. So nothing to do with business agility, but applying system thinking immediately helps you to see a bigger boundary and see the bigger problem. So it's not about business agility. It's just an approach you can use in business agility. If business agility is something you want to achieve, having a systemic lens helps you to achieve more sustainable agility much faster. So how is this helpful? You can use it as a diagnosis tool to have a better, broader understanding of the problematic situation. You can use it as a design tool when you're designing, let's say, for business agility. Having 150 Scrum teams doesn't make you business and an agile business. So when you're thinking about business agility, you can use systemic approach as a lens for design. Or when you're facing with ongoing problems and you want to design a policy, an organization, a solution, having a systemic approach helps you with the design. The other aspect is, is that your ability to manage a complex organization depends on how good your model of the organization is. But if the only model of organization you have is a Gantt chart and job descriptions and processes, your ability to manage that organization is very limited. So system thinking is also a good model to see 
complex dynamic situations or systems in the world that help you better interact to achieve the outcome you're after. Okay, so that's kind of the third way that system thinking is helpful. So diagnosis design and having a model to make sense of the world around you. I'll just give one example about COVID and then I'll close off. So when COVID first hits, it was a health problem. If you treat it as a health problem, then all your solutions is, oh, let's just put people in the hospital with ventilators. And then so oh, maybe vaccine is the problem. But as situation begin to unfold, so our intervention was initially health intervention. Then we begin to see, oh, we need to close down the borders. Then we tap into the economic impact of that unemployment. Well, okay, now it's an economy problem. Let's introduce these COVID supports. Let's work with banks who help with delaying the payments. Oh, now we begin to get into cultural problem because there is identity issues. People see, oh, but I have my freedom. You cannot tell me whether to wear a mask or not or inject a vaccine. But if your intervention comes from only one angle, you're going to be very unsuccessful. But as soon as we look at, oh, we have an economy system, a health system, sociocultural system, all they're interacting, then your interventions, you say, all right, so if you have issues with wearing masks or cultural identity, let's have awareness campaigns instead of just treating as a health problem. If you have economic issues, let's look at COVID support from the government. Let's do contact tracing. Let's come up with a policy that people without vaccine cannot get. So you, you look at many different angles. And we didn't start with all of those. Let's just be honest. We thought it's a health problem. Or we begin to expand our boundaries and come up with a much more holistic, multi-perspective interventions in the system. Bring that in at a team and organization level, and you will get a much better way of interacting and operating in the world. So there is a community system at play. If you go to the meetup.com and search for systems at play, you will find us. We get together every month or every second month. We bring international speakers. Sometimes we also have an Australian speaker. Sometimes we just talk about system thinking as the members. We have roughly around 300 members now. And we believe that system thinking is such a vast ocean. None of us can on our own learn about it and be effective. We are using it as a support network and community to see Let's just bring all of our experiences and try to learn from each other. We also, like I said, bring experts to help us. So if you're interested, you can learn a bit more about system thinking. Yeah. There's also some great videos by Russell Aikoff and, and a few others. That's some of the things we've talked about. So, hey, I really appreciated you coming on, Eladad. It's very interesting. I think we covered a combination of theory and practical things that people can try and think about when they're doing their work and trying to solve problems. So thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, you guys for your service to the community, taking your time and recording this podcast. So I appreciate it. No, it's fun. We'll catch you later. Thanks. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.